This episode is brought to you by Posh Peanut. It has quickly become my favorite clothing brand for my little girl, Tilden. And now I have the opportunity to offer every listener that signs up 10% off their first order. All you have to do is click the link in the show notes, then enter code Tilly at checkout. That's T-I-L-L-Y. When you place your first order and have your little one in their cute Posh Peanut outfit, be sure to use the hashtag Posh Peanut and tag me, True Crime Fan Club Pod, so I can see how cute your little one looks in their new Posh Peanut. Once again, click the link in my bio and enter code Tilly, that's T-I-L-L-Y, at checkout to get 10% off your first order. Hey everyone, Lainey here. I'm excited to tell you about a brand new project I've been working on with Spotify. Every Tuesday, starting at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, I host a live room on Spotify Green Room. It's an app that you download in the Apple App Store or Google Play. Every week, I upload the audio from the discussion to make sure you never miss an episode. The fun part, I've decided to create a giveaway. So, until August 31st, 2021, you have an opportunity to win a True Crime Fan Club or It's Haunted What Now Yeti-like Tumblr, a mixture of the True Crime Fan Club and It's Haunted What Now swag, and a $20 Amazon gift card. All you have to do is follow me, True Crime Fan Club Pod, on Instagram, Spotify Green Room on Instagram, create your Spotify Green Room account, and follow me there, at Lainey Hobbs. Then take a screenshot of you in the True Crime Convos room that happens every Tuesday starting at 6 p.m. Central. Once you've done that, send me a screenshot of those items and you will be entered to win the giveaway. The rule for the giveaway will be in the show notes and on my social media page. The winner will be announced on September 7th in the True Crime Convos room and then, of course, uploaded to the feed, and the winner will be contacted separately. So in this particular discussion, I'm giving some updates about the Daybell case, the Morphew case, a little bit of Scott Peterson, and some Robert Durst information. Okay, here's the discussion. Welcome back to True Crime Convos every Tuesday with me, your host from the True Crime Fan Club podcast, the Crimes of Passion podcast, and the It's Haunted What Now podcast. Give people some time. We start at 6 p.m., but I want to give everybody some time to get here. I'm going to be talking about Daybell Vallow updates that happened in their case. Go over a couple of recent um, events that have popped up here and cover kind of just like a brief timeline of the case and investigation as it occurred. So as we know, on the 26th of November in 2019, Rexburg police learned that there were two children that were missing. Um, those children belonged to Lori Daybell Val or Lori Vallow Daybell. Um, she had recently gotten married to Chad Daybell, and when she was questioned about it as to where her child was or her children were, she, you know, made up a story, as we all know, that proved to be false, and uh, the police did some digging and found out that she basically lied about the situation. When they went back to basically call her out on it, her and her new husband had already vanished, and they had made their way to Hawaii. So the story itself, or the whole case, 
really is confusing if you don't have an understanding of the timeline <clears throat> and who the people are and who's involved because to me there's this there's three people at the center of the entire investigation that's Lori Vallow Daybell she's the wife of Chad Daybell and her brother Alex Cox those to me are the three individuals who are um the primary people for uh the case and everything that's gone on with it so so we have um the three individuals that i believe are responsible for um everything that's kind of gone on with this case i said it was Lori daybell chad daybell and alex cox who is Lori's brother um now the two children at the center of this investigation are Tylee Ryan, who was 17 at the time of her disappearance, and J.J. Vallow, who was seven at the time of um, his disappearance. On the other side, we also have Chad Daybell, who was married previously to a woman named Tammy Daybell. Um, she had recently passed away, and we'll get into how soon of... <laughs> Uh, how much time passed in between them, um, between Tammy passing away and Chad and um, Lori getting married. So what we find is, give me a second here. Um, Lori had been married, I think about three times. I'm not going to go super in depth into the, um, timeline in terms of like specifics of xyz doing this person whatever um but joseph anthony ryan jr that's when they have tylee and joseph actually adopts colby so they are a family for a little while and then she gets a divorce from there she gets a divorce from there and ends up marrying uh charles Vallow. And this is kind of now Lori had also kind of already had some weird dealings going on. Like at times she would um like jump off the deep end in some respects. But um with Charles Vallow, she really did kind of do as much as she could to um make herself look like she was suffering from a lot of mental health issues. Um, so I think the, the timeline starts around 2007 when Alex Cox, her brother gets involved and he actually assaults Joseph Ryan and he used a stun gun on him and threatened to kill him. Then Charles and Lori finalize the adoption of JJ, who is um, actually Charles's grandnephew. And that's when they decided in 2014, like, hey, JJ would be best with Charles and Lori instead of Kay and Larry Woodcock. Um, because they, you know, were an older couple, they didn't really have a lot of time to devote to him. He was a special needs child. So they did um, decide to adopt him. So in 2014, after adopting him, they decide to move to Kauai and in Hawaii. 
I know it sounds very similar, <laughs> but they're different Kauai with the K. Um, and then around that time or early in 2015, Lori starts listening and reading books by this author named Chad Daybell. And something inside of her brain just clicks and she's just like, yep, that's the person I'm going to be. Um, you know, that's the person I'm going to focus on and be obsessed with. So according to her friends, once she gets a hold of Chad's books and she hears him on the podcast that he hosts or co-hosts, she's like relentlessly upset or obsessed with him. So later on, he goes or this is when I think Charles starts to kind of be like, okay, something's like going on with this lady. Now we move on to Chad who in 2015 is told in a voice, like told by a voice that, Hey, you need to move to Rexburg, Idaho. And so they move from um, Utah to Salem, Idaho. And then the Vallows move from Hawaii to Arizona but they have um, been having some issues. Charles and Lori had been having some issues for some time. And so their marriage was starting to become a little rocky. Now, after that, after Lori decides like, hey, I'm obsessed with Chad Daybell and his writings and musings, they end up going to, like they end up, her and her niece, Melanie, end up going to this event called Preparing a People. And that's where they meet Chad Daybell for the first time. And then Lori and Chad get together. and Or Lori and Chad start exchanging emails with each other. And they go on podcasts together. And Chad stays actually at Lori Daybell's home in Arizona with her husband at the time. Um, she also gets an email like Chad Daybell believed that people had like darkness in them or light in them. And so he would say like, Oh, this person's a demon or they have darkness in them. So, you know, you shouldn't be around them. And he would send emails like that to Lori saying like, Oh, this person is a demon and this is their name. And so she would start to kind of follow along with whatever he was saying so at this time in 2019, Lori starts stealing money from her husband's business accounts. And she's like taking 25000 here, taking 150000 there or whatever. And she starts again to go off the deep end. Like she had some mental health issues in the past. But now Charles is like, dude, something is really wrong with this lady. Because one day she called him and was like, hey, I'm actually a god on earth and i was sent here to carry out the work to select the 144,000 people that are going to go with us over you know to meet christ or whatever um and she basically was like i'll kill you if you get in my way and jesus was planning according to lori based off of what she was told by chad jesus was going to be coming in july 2020 so they had to get their plans going because it was already January of 2019. So they really needed to step things into gear. So <laughs> I laugh because it's so ridiculous. And Charles did try to get her help. Like he, 
tries to call the police and say like, Hey, listen, you need to, um, check in on her. She's having some mental health issues or she's saying these really crazy things. And she's also threatened to kill me. So I wanted, I want to make sure, you know, like everything's okay. Well, she actually gets admitted or she checks herself into a, I think an inpatient hospital and she's discharged like a few hours later. Then February of 2019, Charles decides he's had enough and he's going to file for divorce from her. And he says her, his attorneys are like, listen, if she's already threatened to kill you, probably a good idea to remove her from your life insurance and as a beneficiary. And he does that. He takes that into consideration and does make that change. So spoiler alert, when Charles dies, Lori doesn't even know that she's no longer the beneficiary. She thinks she's coming into some, like, I think I forgot. I think it's maybe like a million dollar policy or something. So she thinks she's coming into money, but she ends up finding out after that after he dies that um that's not the case so after that after they finish getting divorced and everything etc um charles comes back and says hey listen i actually i i don't want to go through with the divorce anymore i want to make things work Lori's not really into it she's still kind of dramatically changed in the sense that she she definitely believes that she's a part of the 144,000, that she's going to save people, and that she's going to basically rid the world of people who have darkness in them and who are also what she considers to be zombies. Now, in a podcast that's co-hosted by one of her best friends at the time, she ends up saying that um, her daughter, Tylee, is a zombie. And that she doesn't want her to go through life like that. And that she's been difficult to deal with. And this comes into play later because you find out that the people they consider to be zombies are people that have coincidentally ended up dead. So we fast forward a little bit to the kids go missing, right? So JJ and Tylee go missing at separate times. But overall, you find out like, hey, there's this problem here and JJ doesn't go to school. Uh, Lori lies about Tylee going to college. That never actually happened. And her brother, Alex, who was responsible for shooting her husband, her ex-husband, Charles Vallow, and quote unquote self-defense, um, is also present whenever these children go missing. And so it's believed that Alex took some part in um, murdering and then disposing of the children's bodies. So ultimately, Lori and Chad Debo get married. Um, Tammy, his wife at the time, was pronounced dead in October of 2019. And then she, I think they get married in November of 2019, where Chad and Lori um, get married in Kauai in 2019. But prior to that, prior to even Tammy dying, they had been searching or Lori had been searching for wedding rings, and she had also been searching for a wedding dress. So it there it's left 
up for debate, but I would say that it's pretty clear that they had intended um, for Tammy to be dead and in order for them to get married in November of 2019. Now, news starts to pick up like, hey, this is starting to happen in terms of these kids are missing. These two people are refusing to answer any questions about them. They have verifiable lies saying, you know, the little kid is in Arizona with their grandparents when the grandparents are the ones who reported them missing. So it's all kind of up in the air. You don't really know what's going on. I remember when this was all happening in real time that I was just like, those kids are dead. Like, it's not that hard if you're facing any type of legal ramifications where it says you need to produce these kids or you're going to be arrested for neglect. And if you're sitting here saying like, oh, they're fine. Oh, they're okay. Trust me, they're okay. You don't need to know where they're at. But every time you end up confessing, like this is where they are, they're nowhere to be found or they find out that you've tried to coach people or, you know, that you've just straight out lied. So <clears throat> things start to ramp up in February of 2020. And this is when they basically tell Lori Vallow, put up or shut up. You need to produce these kids or you're going to jail. And they were hiding out in Hawaii at the time. So remember, all of this happened in Rexburg, Idaho. So Lori does not produce the kids as directed. And she ends up being arrested in Hawaii. And she's charged with two counts of felony desertion of a child. And then she has misdemeanor charges of resisting arrest and obstructing an officer, solicitation of a crime. And she's held on, and this was really controversial at the time, she's held on a $5 million bond um, in Hawaii. And that was because primarily the potential for them of being a flight risk, because they've already shown that when confronted by the police, they'll drop everything, not take anything with them, and just flee. So that's why they... Um, requested the $5 million bail and were granted it. And so Chad, meanwhile, while Lori is getting arrested, Chad's off pretty much scot-free. They can't really tie him to anything yet, but he goes back home to Rexburg, Idaho, because that's eventually where Lori's going to be shipped off to because she ends up waiving extradition. So March comes around and she's in there um, in Idaho, appears in court, and they charge her, you know, with the crimes as stated in Hawaii. But they lower her bond from $5 million to $1 million, which she can't do because she's already used the majority of the money that she did come into. Um, and Chad probably has an idea that he's also going to be arrested, so he doesn't have any money um, from Tammy's estate to use to help her with her bond. Um, <clears throat> then you start to see that over the course of like March to May and June, or March to May, really, Lori, there's attorneys that are just requesting withdrawal from Lori's case. And you come to find out this is later because she's at some point deemed to be mentally incompetent. Like they're, she's still in the thrust of I'm here as a God on earth. I know that in July, Jesus is going to come down. You guys are all going to die. And I'm going to, you know, be responsible for saving 144,000 people, being Chad. So none of, the, none of this bothers her, right? She's not worried about any of this. And mind you, they still have not found the children. They haven't found Tylee and they haven't found JJ. So she still hasn't produced them, but she's also smiling in court. She's, 
you know, talking to chat on the phone. Those phone calls are recorded and she's, she's happy. She's jovial. She's assured in the fact that, you know, July's coming and all of this will be but a blur and she'll be in paradise with Chad, basically. And Chad is the same way until June of 2020, I think June 9th specifically. So law enforcement and the FBI go and serve a search warrant on Chad's property, the property he shared with his wife, Tammy. Now, they have um, on that property, Chad used to have a fire pit and then an animal graveyard where he would bury the family pets or any other animals he came across. Um, he would bury them in that little backyard area. So those are the two areas that the FBI and the police in Rexburg are focused on when they start doing their digging. And what you see is um, in news reports and in pictures, you see Chad Daybell sitting in his car in the driveway of his home, watching the officers dig around his property. And he's on the phone or he happens to get a call from Lori, who's in the county jail. And he tells her, like, they're searching the property, they're searching the backyard, and kind of hinting to her, like, yeah, you know, in these two specific places, this is where they're going to go. And she's just like, okay, well, call me later. I love you. And it's just no, no regard whatsoever that the game is over for them. What they happen to find are two sets of human remains. One is found with um, chars on the bone, which means that this, pers or this person, which ended up being Tylee Ryan, the 17-year-old, was dismembered and her body was burned and then buried. And then JJ was also buried, but his body um, was not burned and he was also not dismembered. He was, it's believed that he was likely suffocated. Um, so... Chad obviously is arrested and taken into custody for questioning. And then he's not arrested immediately for murder. He's just arrested for um, concealment of human remains because you can't bury people on your property legally um, without telling anybody. Um, so he's arrested for that. And so in or the very next day, the remains are positively identified as Tylee and JJ. And then Chad's day, Chad's um, bail is set at a million dollars. So then things change for Lori because previously she was mostly charged with misdemeanors that wouldn't have really seen her serve any jail time, probably would have given her time served. So I know in the true crimes here, a lot of people were hoping that with the discovery of the bodies, a lot of people already figured that the children, unfortunately, had already passed. And so they were hoping that there would either be murder charges or some other kind of charge that would happen. Um, about 20 days later, towards the end of June, Lori's charged with two felony counts of conspiracy to conceal evidence. And then you don't really hear anything because things are kind of just happening in court and documents are being filed and evidence is being gathered. So it's really like case closed for now until July 22nd of 2020, which is the day that Chan and Lori had been waiting for because, as you recall, they were gods on earth. And so this was the day the rapture was supposed to happen. And lo and behold, it did not. So I can't imagine 
um, when people are that far into a delusion of believing, you know, a rapture's coming, what necessarily goes through their mind when that doesn't happen? I don't know if they go, oh, well, we probably just miscalculated and it'll actually happen um, in, you know, next year or something like that. So I don't know. Um, obviously, if they planned on 2021 being the rapture, that's also passed. So I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know, if they're, if they're betting on 2022, who knows? So the day passes and then we hit August, we get preliminary hearings. Nothing really happens because they don't want the charges read aloud in court. So it moves fairly quickly. They both plead not guilty and they want people to basically kind of hope and from the attorney's perspective that the case kind of fades away and that a new case will pop up. But this case is so polarizing that there's just no way um, that anybody's going to forget about this case, even after a resolution in terms of sentencing happens. Um, so we go through the rest of the year where they're entering pleas of not guilty. They want to have the trial moved out of the county because they don't think they could get a fair trial in Rexburg. They don't want to have joint trials with um, each other, which makes sense. I, I wouldn't want a joint trial either. I wouldn't even want a jury trial, honestly. Um, but they opt for jury trials. And then um, they go forth and Lori ends up having uh, her misdemeanor jury trial for the charges that um, were brought against her in Hawaii for, you know, obstruction, things like that. So they keep going, et cetera, et cetera. And now what we find is their, their cases or their trials have been pushed back till later in the year. And what we now heard recently after all of that is that they are now wanting to charge Chad Daybell with murder, and they also intend to seek the death penalty, which was huge, um, which was a huge break earlier this week. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't think that they were going to do that. Um, but they are planning on doing that. And the reason that they're doing that is because obviously they changed it from concealment of remains to straight up murder, because as they continued to investigate and gather evidence, they discovered that Alex Cox, Lori's brother, was in the same area as Chad Daybell during the evening time when the two children were likely buried. So it's believed that Tylee was murdered first, um, and this was done by Alex Cox, her uncle. And then after she was disposed of and taken care of, then Lori believed that her son, JJ, was also a zombie and needed to be taken care of. So there's a text message exchange that happens between her and Alex. And she's like, hey, listen, I have these special powers and he's a zombie. So I need you to come take care of him. So the last time JJ is seen is when Alex comes to pick him up because he had been acting possessed and acting like a zombie. And so Alex comes to pick him up and then sends him, I don't know what I just heard, um, 
basically somehow murders him and then takes his body to Chad Daybell's property and buries him with the help of Chad Daybell. And so the reason we know that Chad Daybell was helping or had buried the body on his own is because there was a text sent to his wife, Tammy, where he basically tried to cover it up and say, hey, there was this raccoon on the fence. I shot it. And then I buried it in the um, backyard. So if you happen to see the fire pit going or you happen to notice that there's a new fresh mound, then just know that it was the little raccoon I killed as opposed to a child. Now, the shock comes when they discover the bodies, they find out what happened to Tylee, that her body was, you know, dismembered in some ways and charred in some ways and was treated more, I hate to say it like this, but treated more unkindly than JJ's. JJ was, um, it seems like he was suffocated and then wrapped up and buried in a tarp and then buried in the ground. But they went through more effort to conceal and really do damage to Tylee's body, which says a lot because Tylee and um, Lori had had a really strange, strained relationship up until um, her passing. So it, it, was surprising to hear all of that happen um, in real time. Now, because the death penalty was sought, the reasoning that the uh, county prosecutors gave for why they were doing this in the first place, because we didn't anticipate that we would see a death penalty charge. We knew it was a possibility, but we didn't think that they would do it. And the reason that they decided to pursue the death penalty, aside from the deaths being heinous and cruel, which is um, kind of what you need in order to be able to seek the death penalty, but they killed more than just Tylee and JJ. They're suspected of also killing Tammy Daybell. Her autopsy came back and they're also suspected of killing Charles Vallow, who was um, Lori's husband prior to her marrying Chad. And they mostly did this because not only did they believe in this rapture that was happening, but they also realized that these people, the children and their spouses, were more were worth more dead to them than they were alive. And if they could conceal their death, especially the children's, they could collect continue to collect the Social Security survivor benefits and Tammy Tammy Daybell's life insurance money. Um, and like I said, this is Idaho, so they don't really have a lot of death penalty cases that come out. Um, there's, it's not like Texas by any means where, you know, every other case is a death penalty case. Um, here it's like you hear it and it happens, but in Idaho, that doesn't really happen. I think they only have like a handful of men. So maybe like seven men altogether on death row. Um, it's probably triple that here in Texas and one woman on death row. And they may be adding Lori Vallow to that soon. They have postponed Lori's trial, which was supposed to happen in March of this year. But they did postpone it because they found that she wasn't competent to stand trial. So who knows what's going to happen with her. But it seems like Chad Daybell um, is going to be getting the uh, brunt of the attack in terms of the the harshness of the penalty that's coming. So I think that what they're trying to do is get him to turn on Lori and somehow you know, say like, oh, she participated here for maybe a reduced sentence or maybe to take the death penalty off. 
curious to hear what you guys think if you're familiar with it or from what you've heard. But yeah, my thinking is that they're pursuing the death penalty case against him so that he will be scared and that he will be more likely to enter into a deal since Lori isn't going to trial anytime soon. He has the potential to face the biggest consequence, which is death. And they may not even pursue that for Lori. It may just be Chad that they pursue it for. So my thinking is the way that he's conducted himself thus far, he thinks that he is not going to um, have any consequences to his actions. So he may not, you know, take the advice of his counsel or maybe his counsel will be like, no, we can totally, you know, take this off or just give me something. But I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to think about that. Um, I just think that it's a way to manipulate Chad into turning against Lori. And I think once once he's put up against the fence like he is right now, I think he will end up taking a plea and turning against her. I think before he didn't do that, obviously, because he wasn't arrested and he really didn't have any reason to turn on Lori and say, hey, this, you know, this is what's going on. He could live his life freely while she was jailed. He could live on his wife's, you know, his ex or I don't know, his widowed wife, he was a widower, even though he killed her, um, his ex-wife's, you know, life insurance and not face any consequences, really. You know, he could be suspected, sure, but that didn't stop him from being able to fly to Hawaii or do whatever he wanted until the bodies were found. So he didn't really have any reason to turn on her and he still kept in contact with her. And maybe he's the, um, you know, the, the guy who's behind it all, you know, with the puppet strings and everybody thinks it's the opposite that Lori's the one who is telling her. But when you think about it, Lori is the one who became obsessed with him because of what he was saying about doomsday and about being a God and God has convinced her through their conversations and through those emails that you see that, hey, listen, you could join in on this too, and we could be a God and goddess, and look at how much money we're going to get. It's just great. And then convinced her that her children you know, were zombies and convinced her to convince her brother, who would do anything for her, to you know, murder people who got in their way, essentially, of whatever they were trying to accomplish. So... We'll see how it turns out. That was the breaking update in the Daybell case. Um, last week, we talked, and if you guys have any questions about it, feel free to hop on, ask in the chat, or come up and talk about it, even to share your thoughts about how effed up this case is, because it really is, and it's polarizing. Um, and there's really, it's nonsensical, because the way that they've maneuvered this whole thing seems really obvious that they were going to get caught, but they did a good job in covering, um, you know, their, their footsteps, so to say, or covering their tracks. So, you know, share your thoughts if you think it was crazy, which it was, or, you know, kind of what you think the prosecutors are trying to accomplish with the death penalty. If you don't think there's anything um, going with it, you know, if, there, if there's no ulterior motives, then, they're just seeking the death penalty, and it is what it is. So feel free, let me know, and then we'll move on to the Morphew case. Um, so last week, I talked about the disappearance of Suzanne Morphew. And at the time when I selected the case, there really wasn't 
you know, it was still being investigated because it happened fairly recently. Um, she went missing in May of 2020. So she was reported missing, not by her husband, but by a neighbor. So she supposedly had gone out on a bike ride, which she was known to do on Mother's Day of last year. And her husband had told her, hey, I'm going to work this landscaping job, but I'll be out of town. Love you. And they had apparently got into a fight about whatever she was considering um, having a divorce. But she had also shared with her friend in a text message, like, you know what? I don't feel safe around my husband. and I don't feel safe being alone around him. So I'm just making that known. So it seems like she had some awareness that he, you know, had some loose screws because there was also an incident where, um, and we find this out because of this um, preliminary hearing that happened a few days ago. So all of this information is new to us because we didn't have it before. So apparently her friend had testified during that um, hearing saying that she didn't feel safe being alone with her husband. And there was an incident two years prior to that where Barry had, they had an argument, Barry pushed her into a closet and basically held her hostage, but he put a gun to his own head and was like screaming, like, is this what you want? Is this what you want? And so she was just like terrified ever since that moment. And she didn't really want to talk about getting a divorce. She was kind of secretly telling people she wanted to get a divorce, but she wouldn't tell um, him directly like, Hey, I want to get a divorce. Anytime they ever kind of broached the subject, he would just shut it down and say like, just give me another chance. But she kept going back to that 2018 incident and was like, I'm terrified. And I know that I should end it, but I don't know how. And you often find that with people who are in, you know, uh, emotionally abusive relationships or any type of par intimate partner violence relationships that happen. Um, they don't know how to leave and it takes them, you know, a long time to figure out how to do that safely. So we can't ever go, you know, oh, why didn't you just do this or anything like that? We don't ever blame the victim. That is not what we do here. So it was also announced in this or preliminary hearing which blew my mind, which is why I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to talk about this on Tuesday. So Suzanne had thought that her husband, Barry, was having an affair. And she decided to buy this spy pen. And basically what this spy pen would do was it would record conversations. It would be triggered by voice, right? So if we walk into a room and I'm like, hey, how are you? And that's when the pen would turn on. So she basically bought this to catch him cheating. Well, that ended up being confiscated as evidence. And what they found was that Suzanne was actually engaged in an affair with an old high school boyfriend. And this had been happening since late 2018 and up until her disappearance. So there's thought we have no confirmation whatsoever. We won't know until the 24th or 25th when they agree to release the evidence of uh, the preliminary hearing, more evidence rather. That was set by based off of what the judge said. Um, he doesn't want it to become like a media circus, even though it will. So he's delaying when people will find out this information. So during this preliminary hearing, we find out that Suzanne was engaged in an affair from 2018 till the, her, the day of her disappearance with an old high school boyfriend. And 
what we find what was odd and why this was such a big deal was because Barry made no mention of it during his interrogation and the man that she was having an affair with did not come forward and say like, Hey, I've been having an affair. Eliminate me as a suspect. Instead, he went and deleted all of the accounts that him and Suzanne used to message each other, which if you listen to true crime or know anything about true crime, that is probably the wrong thing. To, it's not probably, it is the wrong thing to do. You don't ever want to try and dispose of evidence. Um, even though his reasoning made sense on the outside, it looks extremely suspicious to do that. So I would just warn you and caution you, tell all of your friends that if they're engaged in an affair with somebody to not get rid of the evidence in the event that person goes missing for whatever reason. So anyways, he deletes all of the you know, ways that they're associated, doesn't come forward, but they identify him in November of 2020, which was new information for us. And they went to him and said, hey, why did you delete all of these accounts? You know, if you didn't do anything, why would you go and do this? And he was like, well, you know, we've known each other since high school. We had a relationship. It had been going on for several years. I loved her. We talked about, you know, leaving our spouses and starting over with each other. And he basically didn't want to ruin Suzanne's reputation and legacy. So that's why he decided not to come forward. And so we, there was no live um, video feed in the courtroom, but we were following a reporter who is reporting on Twitter about this and basically said that Barry was silent the entire time in court, except when he was just whispering to his attorneys and passing notes on paper. And you often see that with defendants is they spend a lot of time in the ear of their attorneys or writing notes either for themselves or um, to their attorneys about, you know, whenever they're doing any type of direct examination. But they also noted, and a lot of people thought it was played up because of, you know, they believe that he's responsible for her murder because of the evidence that they apparently found, which we don't know what that is yet. Um, not entirely anyway, but they basically said that they believe that his defense attorney kind of put on a show when they were saying like, Oh, Suzanne was Barry's angel and she was such a special and wonderful person. And while that may be true, the reporter states that Barry was seen dabbing his eyes and that he was crying. And so they, obviously think that that was played up. So I'm curious, you know, for everybody who's listening, and again, hop up if you'd like to, um, what they think about situations like that, because there are obviously people who believe that Barry did not do anything to Suzanne, that she is truly missing. Her body has never been found. So they obviously have some belief that she is that she met with foul play. We don't know how or why yet, um, but they do believe that that happened. And they believe that Barry was responsible for it. We went over this last week, but the reason that they think Barry was responsible was because he had left town for a landscaping job, but he never showed up to the site. And he had supposedly made this, you know, such a big deal and was like, this is a really important job. we got to make sure it's done right. And when 
his coworker took over his hotel room. I guess they were sharing hotel rooms or something. So his coworker took it over and he noticed a strong smell of bleach. There were rags all over the place. So it just was really like when you hear that, that's obviously extremely suspicious that A, this guy doesn't show up. He was, I think, a hundred and so miles away. He doesn't show up to the work site that, you know, and the job that he says is super, super important. But when you walk into his room, you see all of these things that say, I just cleaned up a crime. It's like the epitome of me cleaning up a crime is the smell of bleach, rags, etc. It's straight out of the book. So obviously the coworker found that to be odd, but um, he reported it whenever police questioned him. He didn't think to go and say, hey, this is what's happening. Um, so what was odd about this case is the amount of pages that were in the affidavit that were detailing the case. Because typically you will not see a, you know, like a criminal affidavit detailing like, oh, this is the evidence we found, et cetera, et cetera. You won't see it exceed maybe 30, 40 pages. That's a lot. This one was a 130 page affidavit. Um, and it was sealed by the judge. He was like, no public requests for records are going to be granted. It's not going to be um, put for um, freedom of information because it could potentially impact Barry having a fair trial. Um, but he did say that after Barry had his four-day preliminary hearing, he the um, release would happen seven days after that. So I think he's supposed to have his hearing the 23rd and 24th of August. Um, or the next one. So he will get those after that. And then we'll probably know, you know, what happened. So this case really got my attention because of this, because Barry isn't even the one who reported her missing, right? He, he said, like, we had a fight, I had to go for this job that was really important. It was way out of town. And then it was Mother's Day. So I sent her a text message telling her, I hope she has a good Mother's Day and that I love her, but I never heard back from her. And I thought that was odd. And that's it. He doesn't think to call her or anything else like that and just focus on the job. But we know now that he never even showed up. So that also stuck out to me when I was reading the information available about the um, case was that it wasn't even him who was like, oh, I'm so concerned. Because typically what you will see in these cases, think of Scott Peterson, um, you know, his trial's coming up. Oh, another bombshell about that. We'll touch on that in a minute. Um, but think of Scott Peterson. He was convicted for murdering his pregnant wife, Lacey, and his unborn son, Connor. But he's the one who reported her missing. Um, he called the cops. He Well, he called her family and was like, hey, have you seen her? He didn't initially call the cops, but he was the one who kind of sent up the red flag saying, like, something's happened to Lacey. I don't know where she's at. This is not at all what happened um, with Barry Morphew. He basically was like, okay, she's just not talking to me. Oh, no. Um, so it was the neighbor who was concerned because he was, you know, she usually went on her bike ride. She hadn't come back. She hadn't seen her. And that was just not like Suzanne at all. So he was charged eventually with first degree murder. Mutter, uh, murder in May of this year. He's uh, 
cues along with that of destroying, mutilating, concealing, removing, or altering his wife's body in an attempt to avoid arrest. So apparently whatever evidence they found gave them the information they needed to be able to file those charges against him Um, because otherwise they wouldn't do that and they wouldn't think that she met with foul play if there wasn't some type of evidence to suggest that that happened people go missing all the time and what we have found is that sometimes people go missing on purpose Uh, there was a case recently where an 18 year old was reported missing and they her parents were like oh we think she's in danger There was this whole manhunt for her. She was eventually found and she was like, no, I just decided to leave home. I hate my family and I want to be left alone, Um, but I'm safe and I'm fine. And she's 18. She can do that if she wants to. That's not often the case, but we have seen it happen before. So it's not out of the realm of possibilities to think Suzanne wasn't happy in her marriage. She was contemplating leaving her husband. She was engaged in a two-year-long affair. So maybe she just decided to, you know, gather the courage within herself and leave. And then eventually she'd make contact with her daughters and explain the situation. Or once she felt safe, she would then file for divorce from Barry. But that never happened. And her daughters are stuck in a really position because they're also supporting their father Um, and the reason besides him not you know reporting her missing as being on suspicious the the hotel room being odd and suspicious but he also voted for her in the 2020 presidential election and you would think that if you're trying not to get caught for the murder of your wife or be a suspect in her disappearance that you then wouldn't go and fill out her mail-in ballot and vote for her in the 2020 election. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Um, So essentially, you know, he kind of raised the flag on himself on that one. But um, in terms of the mutilating of a body or concealing a corpse, we don't know what led to that initially. So that's hopefully going to be revealed after the um, preliminary hearing is done. And Mitch, I agree with you. It is wild. Uh, It it makes no sense because honestly, he had been doing, I hate to say it, he had been doing a pretty good job of staying under the radar where they really couldn't charge him with anything because he was far enough away. And, um, you know, he, he said that, hey, when I left, she was sleeping. I sent her this text message. And she didn't respond, but I didn't worry about it. And that was it. So you can't really, I mean, we also have this saying in true crime, like everybody grieves differently, right? So you can't think like, oh, that husband, his wife's missing and he's not crying and devastated on the, you know, on the, on the newscast. And so he obviously did something to her. That's what you would think. But That's not necessarily always the case. Or you have parents of missing children who, you know, are crying their eyes out on TV and they're the ones responsible for, um, you know, the death of their child. So it's things like that. Like you can't just go off of what you see on TV and what you um, 
think may have happened based on how somebody's responding to, you know, what's going on. So it's, it's things like that. You can't just make the assumption like, oh, yes, sorry, I was going to play the, um, I want to play Barry's video for the news. Barry Morphew where he was pleading for his wife to return and you're convinced, you know, like you're like, dude, you're, you're working with the FBI. This is a tip line. So, um, yes, let me put it up. Oh, Suzanne, if anyone is out there that can hear this, that has you, please we'll do whatever it takes to bring you back. We love you. We miss you. Your girls need you. No questions asked. However much, they want, I will do whatever it takes to get you back. Yeah, so he's like crying and everything about, you know, I miss you. I love you. They provided this. So he openly and willingly went and recorded this video for his you know, for the FBI, basically, to help in leads and searching for his wife and says, like, hey, we need you. And okay, sorry about that. I had to shut my dog up for a second. Um, so Isabella says that TV show Unbelievable was about a girl who wasn't believed to being assaulted because of how she was acting. Exactly. So we've seen, oh, no, did I just end this? I hope I didn't. Let me see. Okay, good. I don't know if I ended this. Oh, no, you guys. Okay, no, I didn't. Good, good, good. I just wanted to make sure. So, yes, that is correct. The show Unbelievable was about that, and you just see that. that, that that's what happens. So, um, Barry also says, like, hey, listen, I... Um, think she may have been taken by a mountain lion like that's probably why you see blood or whatever and that just doesn't happen in the state i think they're in colorado yes that doesn't happen i just heard recent stats from a previous podcast where they're like listen um mountain lions attacking people in the like last hundred years has happened maybe three times and that's it like, not attacking people, but killing somebody. So it just doesn't make any sense there. So that's the latest update on the Barry Morphew case. Um, we're waiting to see what happens with that. Obviously, he's been charged with murder. So we anticipate um, that they have a lot of evidence to uh, say what's happened um, and what's going on and why they believe that. So I'm anxious to see what's going on with that. But... We'll just have to wait and see. And luckily, that'll be around the time we have another True Crime Convos happening on Tuesday. So that works for us. Um, I wanted to also talk quickly about the why I brought up Scott Peterson and why he's fresh in my mind is because he's actually going to be called to testify in the Kristen Smart case. And um, it it's not likely that it's going to lead to anything because there's already been a person of interest who's been arrested and charged with the murder of Kristen Smart. And that was the um, 
the man that she was seen walking home with, um, which was Paul Flores. So he's been charged, and so is his father. They've been charged with um, concealment, things like that. And I believe Paul has been charged with um, her murder. But the odd and coincidental thing, and how Scott Peterson ties into this, is he was actually attending the same college at the same time that Kristen Smart was there and enrolled in. So what Paul Flores' attorney is trying to do is to offer another suspect. Um, and that's basically a key in reasonable, um, sorry, reasonable doubt. And so it's obviously to me a ploy to get him to, um, to get distraction or distracted off of Paul Flores being obviously guilty. If you know anything about the Kristen Smart case, Paul Flores is guilty. The investigation was terribly botched. So it only makes sense that they didn't have enough. Um, they didn't have enough evidence because they didn't secure the scene. They didn't search for her. So, you know, it just makes sense that they didn't have a lot to charge him on initially. So there was something that led to him being arrested recently and charged with her murder along with his father, who everybody believed had helped him anyway. Other members of his family, they also believed help, but um, they pinpointed his dad. So they're calling in Scott Peterson to testify to basically question him, um, asking like, oh, where were you when she went missing and what were you doing? So it to me, it's just a ploy, but I think it is interesting. And I think how unfortunate um, for Scott Peterson, because... You know, he's also trying to win an appeal in his case where he's, you know, trying to get the verdict overturned and get a new trial because he doesn't think that he um, should be held accountable for murdering his wife. And listen, I've been over to the Berkeley Marina um, where Lacey's body was found. And long story short, I just don't understand who else would have done it. Scott places himself there, but saying he went fishing in the middle of December um, on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and then his wife happens to go missing, and then he's also happening happens to have an affair at the same time. So, yeah, very strange to me. But anyways, I digress. So that's the update or why um, Scott Peterson was brought up. So the newest update that I also was like, oh my gosh, so much is happening in true crime this week. We had the update with um, Barry Morphew, Chad Daybell, and then Robert Durst. So if you have not watched the Gene, oh, because it is an interesting documentary, Robert Durst shoots himself in the foot because he's the one who wanted this documentary to happen because he liked the movie that the, um, the documentarian did on him based on his previous crime of murdering his wife um and so he basically like invited them into his home to um do a documentary about his life and about his crime that he says he didn't commit but it's very obvious he did again botched investigation so it is what it is um so anyways so um it wasn't expected that he would testify in this trial. Now, he's not on trial for the murder and disappearance of his wife, Kathleen, 
he is on trial for the murder of his quote unquote best friend, Susan Berman. Um, it is believed that he understood from Susan that she was going to talk to the cops and say, you know, everything she knew about Kathleen's disappearance and Robert couldn't take that. So he flew to California and invited himself over to Susan's house. She, of course, trusted him as a friend. And when she turned around to walk inside her home, she was shot in the head. And so people believe or investigators believe that Robert Durst is the one who shot her in the head. And they have some um, evidence to show that he was in the area. He went through a lot of trouble to cover up his um, crime. and remind you of course that he has access to millions of dollars even though he's not in good standing with his family he still has access to that money so he has opportunities to get away <laughs> not with his crime but just to get away and so he has a lot of he has the ability to pull large amounts of cash and stay under the radar by using cash instead of cards so that's what they believe happened is that he used cash to basically fund his murder expedition to go kill Susan. So Susan's shot in the head. Her body's left there. They believe that he's overcome with guilt and he wants her body to be found quickly because he doesn't want his friend, you know, to just sit there decomposing. So it's believed that he sends a letter to the Beverly Hills Police Department that says, you know, there's a cadaver at this address blah, blah, blah. But he mails this letter. So obviously it's going to take some time before the police department gets it. If surprisingly they got it at all, which they did. So good for them. Um, but they, in the documentary, their aha moment besides some um, audio that's deceiving, um, their aha moment was they found the letter that was sent in to the Beverly Hills Police Department and a letters written by Robert Durst and Susan Berman's personal items that I think like her adopted son or like a friend who she adopted as a son, you know, in kind of that way had found during the documentary process. And so they just did kind of a cursory side by side in the documentary and you can see that there's a very strong similarity in the handwriting um, with between the person who wrote the cadaver letter and Robert Durst. So much so that the address envelope has Beverly Hills misspelled on both envelopes. And so the way that they try to catch Robert in a lie is they show him one envelope and say, does this look like your handwriting? And he's like, Oh, yeah, sure. And then they show him the other envelope and he's just like, oh, well, I didn't write, you know, this one. And so they basically of Beverly Hills and they tell him to pick which one is his. So that's how they pull the aha moment with him and say, like, he couldn't pick. He couldn't decipher which one was his and which one was Susan's supposed killer. So. Trials delayed, delayed. And and also, mind you, if you don't know anything about the Robert Durst case, um, he was also put on trial 
for murdering and dismembering his neighbor. He was found not guilty because Dick DeGarren is an incredible attorney, but he was found not guilty in the state of Texas, no less, which boggles my mind because anybody would have seen that he did it. But I forgot what the exact um, reasoning behind them not finding him guilty, but he was basically found not guilty of this murder um, and released. So, but he basically had admitted to like, Yes, I shot him. Yes, I dismembered his body. Oops, I was scared. And I did this in self-defense, and I was just in a fugue state after that. So it's a whole thing. I don't know how he always manages to get away with things, but he does. So they put him on trial for Susan Berman's death. And the whole, you know, the thought behind everything is that he's going to play up this debilitated, like, sickly, ill man. We've seen this before with the... um with the original Night Stalker case where he was pretending to be this really sickly old man. And he was like, huh, like, you know, like you couldn't hear, but then jail video would show him climbing on his bunk and covering up the lights. So it was just like, okay, you're obviously putting on a show. So that's what a lot of people believe that Robert Durst was doing. So nobody anticipated that he wouldn't, um, that he would get on the stand and testify. And he did. So earlier this week, he took the stand in L.A. to testify in his own defense. Now, he is he considers himself to be hard of hearing and seeing. And so it requires kind of a special setup in the courtroom to where he can see the person who's directing questions at him close enough to be able to um, read their lips. So he flat out says during the testimony that he gave that he did not kill Susan Berman and that he was willingly testifying on his own behalf, which again, Dick DeGaron was like, no, he's not because he's incapacitated. He won't do it. And then he surprised everybody and did it anyway. So um, he's actually, this is kind of their last ditch effort to hold him accountable for the murders that they believed he committed, especially um, Susan's. And hopefully eventually they want to try him for Kathy's hoping they get something out of him. But here's the thing. Robert Durst currently has bladder cancer, ton of other physical ailments. He has been wheelchair bound. He's not in good health. Um, and he has a catheter. I, a, a, I think a bag on him too. So he listed all of these ailments that he has in court for, and this is partly the reason why there had to be this special setup because he can't even change out of his prison issue clothes because of the ports that he has in his body. But during his testimony, he went over the timeline of him meeting Susan, how he met her and that he, um, you know, they, they were really good friends. A lot of people thought that they were engaged in a sexual relationship, but they, um, he says that they weren't, that they were just, you know, really good friends. And he considered her to be his best friend. Um, and that was the testimony up until yesterday. Um, he continued to deny basically that, you know, he had anything to do with Susan's death. They basically compared childhoods together, um, during the testimony yesterday, they had no testimony today, which was already pre-planned because there was a jury member who was supposed to be out. Um, but tomorrow testimony picks up again. So if there's something new that pops up, 
I'll either save it for next week or pop up on a room and say, hey, this is what's going on. So yeah, that's kind of the updates that we had for the Lori Ballow Daybell case, the Susan Morphew case, and for the Robert Durst case, and then a little bit of the Kristen Smart case. So if anybody has anything to share, please feel free to come up if you just want to say like, oh my God, this was insane. Like this whole situation was insane. If you have thoughts about a certain case or if you're new to true crime, feel free to come up. Um, and then we, we can talk about it. So I have a little bit of a bug on my app right now. So I can see, because I'm in the room, so I can see things. So if you're coming up, please let me know in the chat. Or if you'd like to, I can try and invite you up to chat to make sure so I don't miss you. But yes, I just want to pick your brain. Or if you want to share something with me about it, then for sure, I want to know. Tell me all the things. Let's see. And I'll give everybody a couple couple minutes. Here we go. Get a little update here. Anybody wants to pop on? Let's see. Okay. So yeah, if nobody has anything, I'm gonna float around, hang out in the room. If you want to talk more true crime, I could do this literally until i'm blue in the face because i this is what i do all the time um i'm really i think one of the cases that i'm really interested to see how it plays out is definitely the Vallow daybell case it is probably the one that has captured my attention the most um so i'm really anxious to see how this whole death penalty thing plays out because i i truly do think they are using it um, to get Chad to turn on Lori, which, I mean, it would be a good idea to do so. If, if he's the mastermind behind all of this, he has a great leg up because, again, Lori's not going to trial anytime soon until she's deemed competent um, to stand trial. So he has all of this opportunity to really, you know, stand up and say, here's what she did, here's what she did, and just shave this time off of his sentence or get a reduction for, you know, a lesser charge, remove the death penalty altogether, accept life, whatever. Um, and it also, you know, he, all of this can end up in appeal anyway and go until appeals are exhausted. So typically most people who are on death row don't actually die. Um, because they're executed, they die of natural causes. So who knows? I don't know. But that's what I think. I think that they're truly just using it um, to get it. And honestly, if it were me, which, I mean, it would never be me. <laughs> but if it were me, um, I would for sure flip a dime and say, like, blame the other person as much as possible to try and shave time off of my sentence. Um and that's just what narcissists do, you know, like when they're in those positions, you see that all the time um, with individuals who take the opportunity first, they always end up getting the better deal. They, um, they just do it, it. It's not fair necessarily, but whoever jumps at the chance first generally makes out better. So that's, I'm interested to see that. And then of course, um, really interested to, see what evidence they have in the Barry Morphew case, because again, it has to be 
really strong if they've attacked the way they have attacked. Um, so I anticipate that we're going to be even more surprised as time goes on once the evidence slowly starts to be released. But yeah, uh, I can't wait for those updates. And then, of course, if there are any true crime cases you're interested in currently or you want to talk about, always feel free. If you click on my profile, you can find my socials. You can always tweet me and let me know what cases you want to hear about. I've already had people do that and I've added them to our case list so that we can discuss them um, in the future every Tuesday. Remember, 6 p.m. Central Standard Time, 7 p.m. Eastern. Um, we can talk about whatever you want. It's literally, like I said, my favorite thing to do. I could talk about true crime all the time. Um, that's also another great podcast if you want to check it out. But yeah, that's basically it for me. If nobody has anything they want to share, uh, I totally get it. I know it's new and it's kind of like, ooh. but trust me, your opinions are wanted, needed, and appreciated. So don't be scared to hop on up, send a request and join, um, or be brave next week. Whenever we come up, we have some exciting things to do tomorrow. I'll be on tomorrow too. I'm going to hang out in green room for a little bit and see what's going on. But otherwise, I hope everybody has a wonderful night and that you explore green room and tell your friends about it. Tell people about true crime convos, et cetera, et cetera. And then we can hang out, have more fun as time goes on. So hope everybody has a good evening and we will talk soon. Bye friends.